The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hi, everybody. This is Glenn Lowry. You've tuned into The Glenn Show at Substack.com and at YouTube. Uh, The Glenn Show is sponsored by the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research, where I am John Paulson, Senior Fellow. And my guest on the show uh, this week is Ernesto Cortez. Ernesto Cortez is an old friend and uh, a lifelong uh, political community organizer with the uh, Industrial Areas Foundation, Southwest Industrial Areas Foundation, Texas Interfaith. And uh, we are here to celebrate Ernie. Uh, and I'm very happy to be able to do so at the Glenn Show. So welcome, Ernie. Thank you. Okay, so here's how we're going to do this. Um, Ernie, as you can see, is uh, in the prime of his life. He has been doing this for a long time. He's a man, a fabled contributor to the art and practice of political organizing. Um, Ernie and I have a quarter century long relationship where he would hold seminars of training for his organizers, and I would be amongst a stable of academics that he'd have come out, talk about our most recent book or paper, and interact uh, with his people. And it's been one of the most gratifying professional experiences of my, of my career working with uh, Ernesto Cortez and his um, organizations in Texas and in California that, uh, that he's uh, been generous enough to include me in. But yeah, Ernie's been around for a while. And I think, you know, it, it behooves us to try to sit and learn from our elders. Ernie, you're my elder. Be- behooves us to try to take a moment to try to see what it is that is at the root of a man's contribution over the course of his lifetime. And that's what I'd like to do with Ernie uh, here on this occasion today. I should give you a chance to talk. You're, you're loquacious. You don't like sitting in silence. Ernie, do you want to say anything? Well, I appreciate being here and I appreciate the comments you've made. And uh, I enjoy, uh, I've enjoyed our relationship uh, over the years. I learned a great deal from you. Uh, uh, you are quicker than I am and, 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 and smarter than I am in many ways, but hopefully I can bring a little bit of my experience and add something to the conversation. I remember so many of my, uh, you know, just sublime experiences interacting with your organization, one of which was after my wife Linda died. She died in 2011. My son Glenn in his early 20s and, and uh, I were living together. And uh, I did one of your seminars, and I brought Glenn along with it. I, I don't even remember what the s- specific agenda was, but I just remember that uh, there was a sense of love and, and power and, and deep humanity. Uh, and there were tears in the eyes of people in the room. At least there were tears in my eyes. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it, it, it just... Uh, kind of, uh, I was deeply, deeply moved by the experience. Anyway, l- let me not uh, go on here too long. Well, I um, would say being moved is 
by experience, by people's stories, their narrative, uh, is one of the things that makes this work both interesting and meaningful, and and one of the things that sustains it. And being able to share the stories, the narratives is is deeply important, I think. And so I want to resonate with that and lift that up. We're set up here uh, by uh, virtue of the aid and support of my uh, able creative director, Nikita Petrov, to show some outtakes from some videos that you've made summarizing and describing the nature of the work that you do. And I'd just like to uh, do that uh, for the audience. It's about 15 minutes of a series of shorts uh, that has Ernie. Uh, oh, we got an echo here. Okay, we don't have the echo anymore. Um, that has Ernie uh, waxing eloquent about what it is that, that uh, he and his, uh, and his community of organizers do. So um, let's do it. Little platoons. I wonder if the kind of work that you insist needs to be done can only be done in small groups, Edmund Burke's Little Platoons, where empathy, solidarity, and loyalty can be created and sustained. But those small groups can be replicated, and that's what we use the house meeting for, is we do go through the small groups, but then we do a campaign where we're going to do 500 of them or 1,000 of them. And the whole point of it is to begin to create that kind of empathy, that kind of attentiveness, that kind of solidarity, and 10,000 people can go through that kind of effort, okay? And that's why we want to ground it in as much as we possibly can be in institutions who are always asking themselves, who else do we need to bring in? Who are the people that we might want to organize and, and connect to? All organizing is disorganizing and reorganizing. It is an iterative process endlessly repetitious for the organizer and the primary leadership, that is much more important than any particular issue. The issues are grist. They're the stuff which makes it possible for people to have conversations. But the organizer is always asking, what are the other implications of this particular issue? And what are we learning about how we're going about it? And how, what are we learning about power? What are we learning about our own interests? What are we learning about, you know, what, what qualities of leadership do we think are important? Do we have enough humor? Do we have enough imagination? Have we learned to care about other people? Are we being thoughtful about how do we recruit other institutions which are different than us? Are we curious about them? How do we demonstrate our curiosity so that we see that the organizing becomes, if you will, enables us to become curious and thoughtful, but not in a kind of an abstract way, a way which is grounded in the relationships that emerge. You point out that one of the key tasks of organizers is to create tension, that tension in an organization or institution can be a productive experience. The tension that emerges in agitation always seems to connect to people is the notion of a washing machine which serves and brings things to the surface, and that's what agitation is. And we talk about agitation is stirring people's imagination and curiosity. But you got to have tension because if your decision-making process is deliberative among people who have different points of view, then the only way there's no tension is for them is only for, is only for one person's point of view to be the only one to take, be taken into consideration. And therefore, everybody else chooses not to reveal their interests or their perspective, which tends to sabotage decision-making when it's not dealt with up front. If you're going to create a diverse group of people, there's always going to be tension. And even in a group of people who are supposedly you know, homogeneous, there's always tension. So tension is just a reality of life. 
that leads on to the next clip that I want to share uh, from this uh, video, which is Ernie talking about polarization and reconciliation, having made this point that tension is unavoidable. So can we roll that one, Nikita? The American political tradition is ambiguous, to be sure. It's a story of oppression of Native Americans, of poor whites, okay, of Mexicans and African-American slavery, all the ugly things. But it's also, at the same time, the story of those people, women, foreigners, immigrants, people who work with their hands, struggling to get, earn their right to participate in the public square. So that political story, that narrative, is our birthright. And in order to create the kind of democratic democracy, we have to retrieve that understanding of that birthright, that understanding of what does it mean to be a political person. So that our community will be ready to apply for driver's licenses as soon as possible. The phrase that I've heard a lot with IAF with respect to how organizing campaigns play out is that you polarize, then you depolarize. Polarizing is focusing on a person to place responsibility on that person and to ratchet up the tension. Well, there's tension because you're not going to get people to mobilize. I mean, people need to feel that they're 100% right and the other guy's 100% wrong. So they need to feel that, you know, that you're, you know, you're wrong, okay? And that's the politics of protest. You know, the university's wrong or, or the government is wrong or somebody's wrong, okay? And we're right because we're, we're, we're being kicked around. We're being victimized, all right? But the reality is that no one is 100% right. And Linsky taught us anyway that, that democracy means that, that most of the time we're right. 51%, 55% of the time we're right. And so that means and if you're going to be political, you have to allow for the other people's interest. We can't have everything. Even if we didn't have nothing before, you know, and, and maybe justice would say we get everything, okay? And that was the hardest thing to teach some of the leaders in the organization when they got some power and, you know, for example, we were fighting over community development block grant money. They wanted it all, okay? Or I mean, they wanted it all. Well, we can't get it all. There's no way we're going to get it all. And if we got it all, okay, there would be so much resentment built up against us that we would lose in the end. So how do you win enough to be successful, which we did, at the same time making concessions to other people and their interests so that they don't feel like we're just being inordinately, you know, demanding? Talk about the depolarization part, because this gets overlooked by activists. It's easier to build up anger than it is to build reconciliation or come to a deal. What it means to depolarize is to recognize the legitimacy of the other people standing in their position and to give them recognition for what they've done. Instead of saying, no, not only did we do it, not only did we get what we wanted, but we did it. And he didn't matter. Okay, He just did what we told him to do. You can't maintain a tenable political position with elected officials who never get any credit for what they do. People who do things in public office want to get credit for what they've done. And, you know, maybe they want inordinate recognition and inordinate praise, but, you know, some of it is appropriate. Well, that's so interesting. Uh, I like that uh, implication that protest uh, falls short, Ernie. Well, Bayard Rustin taught me that many years ago an article he wrote in Commentary Magazine from Protest to Politics, which is required reading for all the organizers. He's one of the great heroes of, of organizing, I think. Bayard Rushman is unfortunately not enough people know about his work. Yeah. Let's move on to the next clip. Uh, and uh, thank you, audience, for bearing with us. I know this might get a little tedious, but actually 
every nugget here has buried within it a lot of wisdom. So let's let's proceed. The necessity of theater. The writer Paul Woodruff, in his book *The Necessity of Theater*, writes that love demands an audience, democracy demands an audience, justice demands an audience, which is why we have trials in public. You place a lot of emphasis on public events as drama that you stage as part of organizing. They are kind of ritualistic in that it seems you are teaching people how to reconceptualize and control their public space in relation to power, to elected officials and others that you are creating a relationship with. It's kind of ironic you say that because whenever public officials come and meet with us, you know, one of the things we do demand is the ability to set the, set the seating arrangements, okay, and where they sit and where we sit and as much as possible to rearrange things. We used to do this very effectively by standing up when our speaker spoke. And we did the same thing here in Los Angeles with Uno. And so that ability to choreograph, if you will, that action, I think, was important for us to be able to do. This type of choreography is interrupting the traditional patterns of relating to power. Make sure that to whatever extent possible, we can create some sort of if you will, public display of our ability to have standing and recognize that. Okay. The Industrial Areas Foundation, in our training, we make a distinction between an issue and a problem. An issue is something which is specific and concrete. It affects a lot of people and it's winnable in a relatively short period of time. Problem is something you talk about. Problem is something that just affects you, okay? But it has to be specific and concrete. It has to be something you can relatively deal with in a short period of time. Otherwise, it becomes just something you talk about. Why did you become an organizer? Because you could have gone in any number of directions in your career, a professor, a politician yourself. So what drove you to become an organizer? Teaching has always been attractive to me, but I really enjoy teaching people who want to learn. I found a hunger on the part of people that other people did not consider, you know, very, very extraordinary. When I see people in house meetings and in training sessions wanting to learn more and challenging me how not to be boring, how to be interesting, how to make a connection between what they're what I'm trying to teach them, whether it's about why do we do house meetings? What do we mean by a a broad-based organization. What do we mean by politics? Why is it different than electioneering? How do we think about education? What's the role of the church? Okay, why do we need the church? I was in Solano County, and I was working with the African-American minister, and I was talking to him about Matthew 25. As a stranger, you took me in. How the word to take in means to to take into. The, it comes from the Greek word synagogo which is the same as the Knesset, okay? So to take in means not to take into your household, not just to feed, but to take you into the center of public life in that community because the synagogue around the first century of the common era was more than a house of worship, it was a house of education, house of prayer, but also where the deliberations took place about family and property and education, what we would call politics. So to find that kind of connection, that kind of energy emerging out of just some reflections on that concept in in the context of, you know, teaching people how to do house meetings and why they should do house meetings. I thought it was, it's, to me, that's not possible 
in electioneering. That's not possible in other kinds of organizing. That's not possible in nonprofit work. And maybe it shouldn't be possible in our work. I'm just taking taking liberties on it. <laughs> Politics is one thing. Electioneering is another. Uh, that seems like a pretty significant uh, point. And you're about yeah. politics. Well, politics is about agency, about leadership. Uh, it's also about, in, in, in its best sense, about teaching people how to argue with each other, how to deliberate, how to engage, how to fight, okay, uh, in ways which are productive and healthy. Stuart Hampshire uh, wrote a book called Justice is Conflict. And he said, you can't have justice unless all the people who have an interest are participants. And because they have different perspectives and different attitudes and different interests, there's going to be conflict. So the question is not, uh, you know, you avoid conflict, is how do you deal with it effectively in a healthy way? Let's move on just briefly here for the last couple of minutes of uh, clips. Um, here are you, Ernie, uh, talking about the iron rule, where, where the subject here is power. Uh, the subject here is about conceptualizing, uh, acquiring and exercising power. Uh, so uh, let's hear about the iron rule. Never do for anyone what he or she can do for themselves. That's what the iron rule says. Now that means if someone can't do for themselves, then we have an obligation to take care of them, okay? Okay? But the point of the iron rule is, the point of the iron rule is to recognize that we have created, unfortunately, in almost all of our institutions, incapacity. That's our difficulty. We don't understand our own culture. We don't understand the obligations and the responsibilities of our own culture. We don't understand what it means to be grown-ups. We don't understand what it means to be people who take initiative. Because we discourage people from being initiatory. We discourage people from being creative. We discourage people from acting in their own behalf. And not only do we discourage people from acting in their own behalf, we put up roadblocks, obstacles. We prevent people from coming together to act. Because what does it mean when two or more people come together? When they come together with a plan, when they come together to initiate action, what does that mean and what does that create? Power. The definition of power is two or more people coming together with a plan. Now we have institutions which prevent that, which discourage that, which ridicule that, we have cultures which ridicule that, prevent that, discourage that, so much so that we have even an adage, a saying that all of you know an absolute power corrupts absolutely. Everybody knows that. And because any and so anytime you talk about power, 
people get n nervous. Because one of the things that we learn about power is that not only is the ability to act, it requires two or more people, but the power depends upon consent. And unfortunately, part of what we have to realize is the extent to which we give consent to people having more power over us than they deserve and more power over us than is even required. Okay. Uh, that, that concludes the uh, part of the conversation here where we're showing outtakes from Ernie's uh, testimonies. Uh, I do want to ask you a question, Ernie, and then may, maybe we can segue into a more general conversation, which is, okay, so power is two or more people coming together with a plan. Uh, we've been acted on and uh, have been maybe in some ways taught not to see the potential of our own power. This is all fine, and you're an organizer trying to get people to understand their interests and then be able to act effectively on them. But I don't see left or right anywhere in this picture. Uh, if I were a fervent uh, pro-life activist who wanted to defend life, I'd want to organize. Uh, I, I, I'd want to marshal, uh, I'd want to assemble people, and I'd want to mo motivate them and teach them how to be able to act on their own interests. Of course, we'd have to say what their interests are. Uh, if I were a union person uh, who wanted to see the working man uh, have more influence over what happened in the plant, same story. Um, if I were an environmentalist who didn't want to see a pipeline built, even though there could be millions of jobs uh, entailed in that, again, it's the same story. So I take it that you think of yourself as a man of the left, as a, as a progressive politically, but please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that, that, you know, the corporations and the financiers are on the other side of that table uh, when you're trying to hold people accountable and whatnot. It's the little guy. Uh that you're after. And I, and I want to try to understand the connection between the principles of organizing and the kind of conceptual framework for your work on the one hand and the specific ideological political content on the other, uh, because, because, you know, uh, you know, they, we, we, we're arguing vociferously in American politics about, about some of these things. Um, you want to respond to that? Well, I do. Uh, I'm going to do it indirectly, but uh, forgive me. Uh, just so you know, just uh, uh, take a spoiler alert. I'm Roman Catholic. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'll be real clear about that. And uh, uh, I'm always fond of a story about a fellow by the name of Herbert McCabe, who was the editor of Black Forest Magazine. And... Uh, there was a guy named, uh, uh, who was, I forget his name now, who was the advisor to the British bishops at the Vatican Council. And he decided, he was a priest, and he decided he wanted to leave the church after Humanae Vitae came out. 
because he said the church was corrupt. And McCabe wrote an article as the editor of Blackfriars Magazine saying just because the church is corrupt, there's no reason to leave her. And he got removed from the editorialship of Blackfriars Magazine for saying that, okay. But then there was this outcry and people were demanding his reinstatement. And so he was reinstated. And so his next editorial said, as I was saying, okay. <laughs> uh, and I say that because um, I was reading a review of a book on Frederick Douglass. And what struck me about Douglass was his opposition to Lincoln initially, because he didn't feel like Lincoln was willing to make the war about slavery. But then he came around to Lincoln's point of view because he realized that without the Union, okay, you'd end up with, you know, a Southern slaveocracy, okay? And the only thing that would end, the only way to end slavery was to preserve the Union. And so he began to see that Lincoln maybe, you know, uh, was right after all. And so he broke with Garrison over that issue, okay? And uh, even though Garrison had been his mentor and his teacher and his friend and for years, okay? And so that Douglas's willingness to understand that the sagacity and the wisdom of Lincoln's approach was intriguing to me. Well, Garrison thought that the Constitution itself was fatally flawed. That's correct. And and Douglas was saying, well, what would be the framework within which we would actually uh, govern ourselves free of slavery, but uh, the constitutional framework that we inherited from the founders? Exactly. And, and I always remember my good friend Bob Moses used to argue we want to make people constitutional, okay? And we want to restore that that's understanding of we the people, okay, uh, which is in the preamble to the Constitution. So uh, this part of the challenge of this work for me is to understand we've got to have vehicles. We have to have instruments. We have to have mech- – you know, we can't just be about protests. There has to be institutional strategies and vehicles in order to bring about – change that can be sustained over time. And so as a consequence, I think it's really important for organizers to understand the importance of institutionally-based organizing. We don't do community organizing. We do institutionally-based organizing. It's got to be around congregations and unions and nonprofits and other institutions. And we have to kind of try to revitalize and rebuild that institutional base. And that's the work of an organizer. Now, out of that then comes issues and protests and issues, but the, the organizer's work is the architect, the you know the, the building of the base, building of the vehicle, so that you can do things about healthcare or immigration or what what have you. I want you to take a minute to give some concrete uh, description of a, a major enterprise that the audience would be able to appreciate exactly what the before, during, and after look like where you feel that the organizing effort that you've been uh, overseeing has uh, has produced significant fruit? Well, uh, two, three, two stories come to mind. One is uh, uh, in the Rio Grande Valley, when we began organizing, the issue of, of, uh, of uh, colonias came up, where, where places which did not have water and, and sewer. I remember, and then in El Paso, there was, you know, ironically, People who were liberal Democratic politicians were slumlords, okay, and owned, you know, 
some buildings where there was one faucet of water for 25 families and people had to line up and literally take buckets of water for cleaning and washing, et cetera. And, you know, and then there was colonias uh, where kids would have to walk to get water. And as a consequence, when they went to school, you know, they didn't smell very good because, you know, they couldn't take baths every day. There was no running water in, in their, in their, in their, in their communities. Okay. And, uh, we didn't start off with that issue. We built first the organizations on the border, Valley Interfaith in the Rio Grande Valley, Episo in El Paso, the border organization in Del Rigo, El Paso, and then got those organizations together, and they supported the other IF organizations in Texas on indigent health care and on education, and as a result, we were able then to negotiate with the other organizations to get them to support them on the issue of getting water and sewer services in the colonias, Today, there's over a billion dollars worth of water and sewer projects up and down the border as a result of that work. Okay, now getting the money was one thing, but we had learned from other efforts it was not enough to get the money. We had to make sure it got spent right. And so there was a woman named Godwin Anaya who would wake people up in the Rio Grande Valley at four o'clock in the morning, call them up, make them get on the bus, they drive to Austin, bus loads, three, four bus loads. Go to the Water Development Board to make sure that the money got spent on their water projects and their sewer projects. These are, uh, if I understand, migrant communities. These are low-income people. They have, uh, they don't have adequate housing and infrastructure, and it's a question of and who are the responsive parties that and the billion plus that you talk about where the money come from and who are, is it government that's doing it? And what, what's the nature of the politics of that well, it was, it was situation? All levels. It was local governments. Okay. It was uh, community initially community development block grant money that went from the governor's office of, when Mark White was governor to local counties. And, you know, frankly, we had to work with those county governments. They didn't know how to fill out the grants. Okay. So we had to work with them and teach them how to make the applications apply for the money, okay, so that we we had a, a guy who was willing to work with us named Itania, but, 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 but the county governments didn't have that capacity. They had no experience in doing this kind of work. So we had to work with them to help build up their capacity. And then we got the state government, Lieutenant Governor Bill Hobby, and, and then Governor Ann Richards pledged, you know, you know, at least over, over $200 million of state money. And then we finally got, we got uh, Bill Bradley and Kay Bailey Hutchinson working together on getting money from the federal government. Okay. Did you answer my question about uh, left and right and how the same organizing principles could apply to uh, someone who was a cultural conservative or someone who was a Republican business-friendly operator as uh, would apply to helping undocumented people perhaps have a a decent provision and, you know? I think so because um, we do a workshop on culture. And we talk about a relational culture or civic culture over against a dominant culture. And the, one of the tenets of the dominant culture is the ideology of the market, privatization. Okay, no government. We're gonna, we're gonna, we want to make government so small. We're gonna drown it in the bathtub. Well, we did that, and we get flooding. We get Katrina. We get you know the flooding in, 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 in the, the grid debacle uh, in Texas. Okay. That's that's the result of no government. Okay, so one of the things I've learned over time is that markets work best when they're embedded, when they're embedded in a strong civic culture, and when they have a local, strong, capable, and effective 
and responsive local government to be able to do things that people like Frank Knight say government's supposed to do. Make sure that we all have the rule of law, the rules of the game, okay? And it's just so that we can sustain market activity over against the ideology, okay, of the market, which is really about power and domination and control. Okay. Uh, I don't so know if, here I'm being, if I'm being responsive or not. If I'm not, you can. No, talk. no, no, but, but this is all good. This is all good because uh, I had on the show recently uh, Richard Wolf, uh, the Marxist economist, uh, and we debated the relative merits of capitalism and socialism. I took capitalism, he took socialism as is predictable. And you both you are know, wrong. And Frank Knight said we'd be talking about enterprise, not, not capitalism. Let me say my piece here. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. Uh, you, you know, I'm not going to put a rank on you because I actually did finish my PhD in economics. You never did finish yours, did you? No, I never did. I never, I'm just got a measly bachelor's degree. Because there were many more valuable things for you to do. I'm just kidding. I'm just uh, teasing you, Ernie. But but I'm I'm going to say this. Um, of course, uh, the framework of markets, transactions, property, trade, contract requires a framework, an institutional framework of law. Of course, the disputes have to be settled. Uh, courts have to adjudicate and so forth and so on. Uh, one relies upon the police for security of property and person, for example, and uh, one, one could carry on from there. So the market, quote unquote, the market, isn't uh, some kind of freestanding entity that's just some kind of idealized, you know, perfect gas where all the laws of physics work out exactly right. On the other hand, enterprise, prices, supply and demand, Friedrich von Hayek, efficiency, okay? When somebody tells me they don't like the price of X, whatever X is, baby formula or a rental apartment, because uh, their favorite group is uh, disadvantaged by that price, I'm holding my wallet. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on the watch. I'm on the lookout because I think at the end of the day, resource allocation will be most effectively realized if we let supply and demand determine prices and we accommodate ourselves to the reality of those messages, et cetera. I could go on. I'm not going to preach. Um, I think the idea of a corporation, a legal entity that allows for a nexus of contracts internalized to a, a firm as opposed to it being engaged in by freestanding separate private entities that are trading over markets with each other is an interesting set of problems. But I don't think corporations embody evil. I think the ideology that runs around talking about big corporations running the world but has no uh, comment about big unions running the world is is again something that I want to hold my wallet when I when I hear it being bandied about. When I talk about finance, as if pulling together the cumulative savings and investments of billions of people on behalf of major undertakings that have to be under underwritten at a large scale. 30-year investments when you're going to actually build a chemical petrol chemical plant or something of that kind. As though finance were simply a bunch of guys 
in offices stealing this this kind of this is the kind of stuff that comes out of the mouth of the Richard Wolves of the world versus understanding that the modern economy rests upon a foundation in which people have to engage in these kinds of transactions. Is there superfluous, uh, speculative, and, uh, you know, kind of unproductive financial uh, going? Of course, but you want to you, you have insurance when you're taking a risk, don't you? Mm-hmm. So somebody's got to be able to write that insurance contract and lay off those risks and diversify and balance and whatnot. This is, you know, I mean, again, I don't want to patronize you. I don't want to lecture. I am lecturing. I know that I'm lecturing. The conflict between people who, like me, embrace the market as a basic framework for thinking about the economy and those who, like Richard Wolff, talk about using the power of government to move resources this way and that on behalf of their idea of what constitutes justice is the fundamental conflict of our time, okay? And, uh, you know, talking about Frank Knight doesn't resolve the conflict. Well, no. And I'm not saying it does. And I'm not saying the conflict is easily resolvable. I've always been impressed by a book written by Arthur Okun, Efficiency and Equality, The Great Trade-Off. I know it. I cite that in my thesis, as a matter of fact, Ernie. Not, again, to pull rank, but... <laughs> all right, all right. We can pull rank on it. But in, the, in that book, he has a phrase which I think is very useful for me anyway. The market has its place, but the market has to be kept in its place. Not just by regulation but also by society, by culture, by norms, okay? And the difficulty is we have lost sight of the role of non-economic factors in, in making sure that an enterprise culture is sustained. Uh, Daniel Bell's wonderful book, which I'm sure you cite also in your thesis, The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism. Okay. No, I know the book. I did not cite the, the <laughs> No, I cited Oaken on the leaky bucket thing. You know, he has this metaphor in uh, uh, that book that you just uh, mentioned, uh, Equality, Efficiency, The Big Trade-Off. He has this metaphor in there about the leaky bucket, because if you want to use government to redistribute, you carry the water from a well with a lot of water to a well with very little, the bucket has a little hole in it and you don't, you don't get all the water over there. Same way with the tax system. When you try to redistribute income to take care of the poor, you lose a little something along the way. And, you know, that's just. And Richard used to, as governor, used to say that you have to always account for a 10% cheat factor. I prefer to think about incentives and about the fact that the marginal costs and benefits are not being equated when there's a wedge in there that's called the tax rate so that the guy who pays and the guy who receives don't get the same thing. The government gets that wedge. But see, look, you know, one of the the best part of a book written by John Kenneth Galbraith called American Capitalism was a metaphor. He said that according to the laws of thermodynamics, the bumblebee can't fly. Okay. And his point was that, according to the to the theory of competitive uh, pure, pure competition, okay, the American system of, of, of enterprise doesn't work. When in fact we have in when we want to show people then an example of what American capitalism is all about, we're taking to see General Motors or IBM or whatever these companies that unfortunately are no longer what they were. But the, the point being is that there is this disposition in an enterprise culture for power for, for for organizations to try to amass as much power as they can and and by so doing engage in rent what you call 
is economists call rent-seeking activity, okay? And that's that's what people are going to do. It's not that they're evil. That's what they do, okay? This is John D. Rockefeller called the American Rose, okay? That too much competition is wasteful, okay? And so he did everything he could to get rid of, you know, you got to prune the American Rose, okay, to make it work. The, the, the challenge is, the difficulty is because we buy into the model the ideology of, of, of you know, per perfect and competitive system. We don't recognize that, that this rent-seeking activity is is part of the norm, and so we there. And the problem is not that they engage in rent-seeking activity; is that they don't they're not willing to share the rents. That's what labor unions are also about. Okay, they're also about sharing the rents, so that we recognize that there's going to be this rent-seeking activity, which again gouges the consumer a bit. But in order for there to be producers. And the question is, do you, for me, is are, do, we, do, we, do we just want to be consumers or do we also want to be agents? Do we want to be producers? Hi, this is Glenn Lowry. I'm here to tell you about policy genius. I'm a man in my 70s. I know I don't look it, but there you are. My wife, my lovely wife, is in her 50s. I need life insurance. It's very important to give her the security that she deserves. We all hope we'll never need life insurance, of course, but mortgage payments, childcare, and other expenses don't disappear when we're gone. Life insurance through your workplace may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it won't follow you if you leave your job. Since life insurance typically gets more expensive as we age, now's the time to buy. Policy Genius gives you a smarter way to find and buy the right coverage for you and your family. Policy Genius was built to modernize the life insurance industry. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $39 per month for $2 million of coverage some options offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find the best fit for your needs. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. There are no added fees and your personal details are private. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Okay. I'm going to leave it there. Let's move on to talk about uh, about Michael Sandel's book, uh, The Tyranny of Merit. Uh, Michael was a guest on the Glenn Show a few weeks ago. Uh, he's a professor of government at Harvard and an ethicist uh, and has written books like uh, What Money Can't Buy, uh, in which he, I think, very insightfully uh, distinguishes between the valuations that the market renders and the valuations that are ethically uh, uh, more uh, imperative. Um, and uh, he, he uh, in this book, uh, The Tyranny of Merit, 
Um, I, I'm not going to try to completely summarize the argument. People can consult the earlier discussion with Sandel himself, or better yet, just consult the book. But he raises a question about the political implications of the kind of stratification that we see in uh, the globalized uh, world that we live in uh, between those with a set of skills that are highly valued in the market and uh, are insulated from the vagaries of uh, trade and uh, dislocation and and change that globalization has brought about, and those who are who are uh, vulnerable to those dislocations and who are not doing quite so well. Uh, and uh, Michael thinks that uh, the rise of populism in politics in the West, of the United States in particular, uh, is related to this uh, uh, alienation uh, and schism that has arisen. Uh, based, justified, and rooted in conceptions of merit uh, that have winners and losers, um, and the, and the losers are losers not only in their material condition but also in in their esteem and their degree of social respect. Um, anyway, Ernie, you've been trying to talk to me about this book for a long time. We've both read it and thought about it. Um, I want you to. Uh, amplify the the description that I just gave, and then tell me what's on your mind. Well, you know, just to kind of again underscore what you just said, the the, the wonderful metaphor he uses is from the TV series Breaking Bad, where the guy is a teacher, and uh, and but can't make enough money to sustain his, his livelihood by teaching, but he's teaching chemistry, and he learns that he can make a, a fortune uh, by selling. Uh, Drugs, okay, making, you know, let's, uh, met, 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 I think it's methamphetamines, okay. Uh, yep. and, so, and he becomes a you know, drug dealer, okay. So the question is, okay, the market, you know, for his work as a drug dealer is much more lucrative than his work as a teacher. Which of the ones is, so, is socially desirable? Well, Michael says, obviously, a teacher, okay. Uh, whereas the market, if you believe in market valuation, you would say, no, the drug dealer is a bit more valuable. Sure. Uh, and so that kind of captures, I think, a lot of what he's saying. Now, for me, the more important thing that, Excuse me. is the notion that people have who are the winners, that they deserve what they got, okay? They deserve, quotes, the value of their marginal product, okay? I think I framed it correctly, okay? And yeah. they're, so because they've created this incremental productivity, they deserve that, whereas people like Frank Nye says, no, Luck has just as much uh, to, to say about why you, you're successful as anything else, okay? Well, but, you know, we, we, we invested in our education. We, you know, we, we brought our kids up right. Yes, but the reason why you're able to do that is also has to do with luck and genetics, et cetera. So there's all kinds of unexplained reasons why you're successful and you cannot. The, the biggest concern that he has and I have is the hubris. The winners have that they think they deserve what they got, but more importantly, that the people who are the losers deserve what they got. And so it's kind of like the the, the parable of the of the uh, Pharisee and the, and the publican, where the Pharisee says, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, thank you, Lord, for making me who I am. I'm a great human being. I'm a wonderful human being. I'm not like this crummy publican and a sinner. And the publican is saying. You know, forgive me, and you know, etc. Okay, I'm a, I'm a sinner, etc. And so, the point is that the, the, the ethics of Christianity are the publican who acknowledges his sin 
you know, is going to enter the kingdom, whereas the other guy is so full of his own self-absorption, so full of his own arts, he ain't going to get there. Okay. Let, so, let, let me, let me, I got to ask you something or I got to interrupt. I object. Here's, here's my object. There's something tautological in saying, okay, let me take two people. One of them gets up at 6 a.m. every morning, works 12 hours, goes home and eats and goes to sleep. Six days a week, rests on the Sabbath. And he builds a life. The other one uh, gets by with his hand out, bouncing from one to another to another situation and never does a damn thing with his time worth remarking. Years go by. It could be said of the person who was industrious, well, they got the industrious gene. They were just fortunate enough to be born with a, a disposition and a sensibility that inclined them toward uh, frugality and uh, self-discipline. And the one who was wayward and, uh, 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 you know, delinquent had the misfortune of having been born that way. And there's no reason for the person who has this big house on the hill built with years of hard labor uh, to crow about it. He just happened to be, you know, the beneficiary. There. Then they're going to say, how did he get the wood up to the top of the hill to build that house, etc." Then they're going to say, who keeps the bandits from coming into his house and taking stuff away from him? There had to be a government. There had to be a state. He doesn't deserve any credit. Well, I don't want to live in a world where a man who works 20 years from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. to build a life can't take credit for that relative to a man who wastes his time, his God-given gift. I think that judgment is not only warranted, I think it's imperative. I think civilization rests on making that judgment. So I deeply distrust this move in which you're going to dismiss as uh, hubris. Well, you're being, no, you're no, being... let me finish. Let me finish. All right, okay. I, don't, I want to talk about another H word, and the word is honor. You're going to dismiss as hubris the fact that I've lived honorably. No, I'm going to say to you, I appreciate, first of all, if you knew, I'm assuming we all understand that in order to build up a strong and effective civic culture, there has to be honor. There has to be reciprocity. There has to be humility. There has to be generosity, okay? There has to be a disposition to include people in as much as possible. So all of the virtues you're talking about, okay, all of the discipline that you're talking about is presumed, okay, in a strong, civic, vital culture. But let me take you to the Rio Grande Valley, okay, in South Texas where we had a group of fishermen who, worked, who got up not at 6 o'clock in the morning, at 4.30 in the morning, okay, to go out and catch fish with their nets. They did that for 20, 30, 40 years. They earned income. They built decent houses. They sent their kids to college, okay? Then along comes, to be fair, probably correctly, environmental regulations, which says the, the nets that they're using are inimical to the fish, the vibrancy of the fish. So they can't use their nets anymore. Okay, so they go and meet with their state senator and they, who's telling them their situation. 
And he says to these 50-year-old men who've got a fourth-grade education, fifth-grade education, because they worked all their life and left school in order to work, you know, for their families, well, there's job training programs you can take. I wanted to get bad the impaler on that state senator. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm with you that that is an insensitive response to the dilemma of these people who deserve better. I don't understand how that relates to the point I was making. Well, the however. point I'm trying to make with you is, okay, that these people then we can say to them, they're part of the deplorables. They're part of the people, you know, who are the great unwashed. And the, you know, one of my best teachers, the guy named Kerry Thompson, said, "Okay, I, I stand for the great unwashed." Okay. Okay, so you're saying not every loser is somebody who sat around on their hands twiddling Absolute. their thumbs. What Sometimes a, a loser just has had bad luck. Who worked their, their their tail off in, in construction and manufacturing and did everything they were supposed to do. Kept you know, pay their taxes, pay their rent, pay their mortgage. Okay kept their homes neat, raised their kids, okay? And all of a sudden, you know, their job leaves and goes off shore to China. Okay, but I want to get back to meritocracy because what I was, the position I was trying to defend is crowing about my success is not necessarily hubris. Crowing about myself well may be uh, an honor to which I am uh, entitled based upon uh, what it is that I've done with my bare hands. Uh, and, and I want to distinguish between, you know, those who do and who don't. I mean, there's a flip side to this. I'm sorry to go on. I'll be brief. You're a lawbreaker. Now, and I'm not. I'm a lawbreaker, and you're a lawbreaker. You might have hurt somebody. You stole something. Now, uh, is it hubris for, for me to label you as someone who uh, is deserving of the punishment that you are, uh, ha have earned? Is it hubris uh, for me to, 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 to take pride in the fact that I actually uh, exerted the discipline and self-control necessary to avoid the temptation of doing this illegal act? Uh, am I not entitled to make a distinction in, in terms of social standing between people who do and who do not uh, live in a way that is compatible with uh, similar living for their neighbors? I'm not against merit. I'm against okay. merit. The ideology of meritocracy, as I, you know, and so recognizing and honoring people, I think is very appropriate. And but, therefore dishonoring people. But remember the book of Job. Okay. Job was a good guy. He did everything he was supposed to do. Okay. And the only reason he's getting punished is because of a cosmic wager that goes on between, between God and one of his angels. Okay. And then when Job cries out and says, what did I do to deserve this? Do you remember God's answer? No, why don't you tell me? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the universe? Oh, yeah. What right do you have to, challenge, to, to, to demand an explanation from me? And so there's some things which are beyond us. Which are, and that's why we have mystery, and that's why we have awe, and that's why we have wonder, because there are things we cannot grab a hold of and totally explain. And I'm going to persist. I'm going to persist in my uh, uh, devil's advocate here against uh, Michael Sandel's premise. Um, I think that the 
envy. You know, that that's the that's the uh, uh, elephant in the room that's not being talked about. That the, well, the failures no, the failures are jealous of the success of the winners, and I think that this is an elaborate philosophical justification of uh, and legitimate legitimation of that uh, of that very undignified sentiment. There used to be a guy named Sismondi. I guess nobody reads him anymore or hears about him. I don't know who you're talking about. He's an economist, and he's in Richard Musgrave's book on public finance, okay, his magnum opus. He talks about Sismondi, and Sismondi argued in favor of progressive taxation to overcome the capacity of envy and resentment, okay? And uh, there is this notion of resentment, which is deeply embedded and corrosive of the spirit. And the difficulty is, if you want to keep a cohesive society, pragmatically, you want to avoid resentment, this notion of this corrosive envy of the spirit, okay, where people become so deeply uh, envious that they strike out, they look for somebody to blame. And that's the roots of fascism. That's the roots of the kind of, of uh, political violence that we're beginning to see. And if you want to be pragmatic about creating a society which is inclusive, you want to avoid that. And so you, it's in your interest, okay, not to have people feel like... That okay, so you agree, you're agreeing with me that the base motivation is envy, but you're nevertheless saying redistribution is the appropriate response to tamp down the... Uh, ill effects of that envy. I'm not saying that base motivation is envy. I'm saying we have mixed motives, okay? Uh, I remember there was a guy in graduate school, uh, and uh, he would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, study for 8, 10 hours every single day, uh, and he could never make more than a B. And so, you know, he couldn't, so he couldn't stay in the PhD program as a result. And there was a, another very, very bright woman. Uh, and I had told one of my professors about this guy, and she said, I know he was talking about this woman. She went home and she just cried because she knew how hard he worked. And all okay. I'm saying is that people deserve consideration. They deserve recognition of their effort. When they struggle as hard as they can to try to make a goal of it, and it still doesn't work for them, you got to recognize it ain't just on them. They're not deplorable because they don't make it. And I would put that on liberal Democrats, and at least who are liberal Democrats, as well as, um, you know, libertarians. There is this notion of there, but the grace of God go I. And I just think uh, we like we like that kind of deep understanding. That's a very Christian sentiment there, it seems to me. Well, it's all, hopefully it's also Jewish and Islamic and all the great faith traditions. Uh, it's, it's a deep understanding of providence. Okay. okay. I stand correct. It it reminds me of the teachings that I became familiar with 
at the time in my life when I was much closer to the Christian tradition than I am now. Well, to me, the tradition still has power. And, uh, you know, because I think it was Whitehead who said that education has got to be about teaching duty. And duty means understanding your obligation to those who've gone before you. So that understanding tradition is the living ideas of the dead versus traditionalism, the dead ideas of the living. And that's what we mean by the communion of saints. That we are, we have this, why it calls it an insistent presence. And the challenge for me is how do you recognize that? And, and I think Frank Knight says it in one of his essays, focusing on individuals is probably a bad idea. Thinking more about families is much more appropriate. I would say more about communities as well. What about race and ethnicity or any, or, uh, you know, what about diversity in that identitarian space? What about gay? What about trans? What, what, in other words, I don't, I'm not trying to trap you. I'm asking, what about the culture wars? So there's the war between left and right, between central government and property and private enterprise and the market. But there's other, there's other battles ongoing for recognition, for standing, for quote-unquote justice. And I'm, I'm just wondering in this uh, framework that you've uh, shared with us here over the course of the hour, uh, where you've talked about your work and empowering people, how this new thing, this new thing of the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years of gender and race and sexuality uh, and identity factors in and, and how it factors into the concerns that you have about humiliation, about hubris, about, uh, because I, I'm sorry, I don't want to go on very long, but I do just want to say this. When you said during one of those outtakes that it's not enough to be, feel that you're right and to be able to prevail when there's unavoidable polarization, there has to be reconciliation. Otherwise, even when you win, you lose because people on the other side are so embittered uh, and and of uh, infuriated that they they are, are determined to resist and and at the end of the day nobody really is a winner in that thing and I thought about somebody who gets fired from their job because they use the n word in a sentence or something like that or uh, I thought about somebody who wants to honor their ancestors who fought in the Confederacy just not to get too pointed but you know the identity thing you know I'm black. Uh, my people, my people have suffered. You mentioned in the context of American history that there's been oppression and that that was an important part of our collective common inheritance. But what happens when people wear it on their sleeve? What happens when they allow their protest, not their politics, their protest, their petulant, childish disruption of the real politics that has to be undertaken to uh, dominate the, the stage. Well, and, and what happens when that impulse shuts down the ability to deliberate rationally about what our real interests are? Well, you know, we're not gonna get anywhere unless somebody was willing to be a grown-up. I once asked a uh, conservative Republican leader, financier, uh, could you name me a, a grown-up in state office? among all the Republican leadership. 
somebody who's mature, somebody who could take responsibility, someone who recognized, you know, differences and dis distinctions, etc. And he thought, and he thought, and he thought, and he thought, and he finally came up with a name, the Speaker of the House, Joe Strauss, but he was not elected, okay, state, statewide. So I said, oh, I told the man, you know, we're nonpartisan. We're willing to work with anybody who's a grown-up. So we're looking for people, leaders who are willing to act like grown-ups, okay, and be mature and recognize that they, that politics is about concessions. Zelensky used to say, there's one word which defines democracy, and that's compromise. So in, in politics, is, what I should have said more clearly is, it, it's not enough to be right, you have to be reasonable. And being reasonable means making sure that the other person gets something, okay? that they're not humiliated, that they're not dismissed, that they're not, I mean, you know, you could argue uh, that, you know, the Second World War came about because of the Carthaginian Peace of Versailles, okay? Because there were... Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. Our time is limited. Do you think Black Lives Matter are reasonable? I don't know. Jury's out. We better find out soon, right? I mean... Some people are and some people aren't. And I, get, I frankly... Um, I'm with Dr. King. He said he was fighting for poor people who are black and poor people who are white and poor people who are Latino and Mexican and poor people who are Jewish and anybody who was poor, he was he was fighting for them, okay? And I'm with him on that, okay? I think our politics has got to be inclusive as much as possible. So, yes, black lives matter, brown lives matter, white lives matter, Jewish lives matter, gay lives matter, okay? Everybody's life matters, okay? And I think to... to engage in hate crimes against anybody is evil, okay? Anti-Semitism almost destroyed European culture, okay? And anti-Semitism was an ideology born out of deep, deep, deep resentment, okay, and envy, as you put it, okay? Uh, but there's a doc that there's a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in all of us. The question is, do we recognize the, the Mr. Hyde in us? The city of San Francisco just agreed to consider a reparations regime in which millions of dollars would be paid to people who could meet the certain desiderata about their racial identity and so on. I, this is not 20 questions. And again, I'm not trying to trap you. I'm really trying to get to a point. You spent your life trying to do a certain kind of politics. And yet, in the realm of diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice, the tenor of the conversation is being set in a very different tone. And, and, I, and I just, you know, reparations, is that consistent with polarization, reconciliation, kind of dialectic in, in which we create a more perfect union and a more wholesome community politically in which we're all living? Is it backward-looking rather than forward-looking and so forth and so on? I'm trying to get you to take a position, man. Well, you're not going to be successful uh, because I'm going to quote Franz Fanon, okay? And he says, I'm not responsible. I can't be worried about what happened in the 17th century. I can't be worried about what happened in the 12th century. i got to find, figure out what, what do we do tomorrow. And he, wrote, he wrote a long quote, which I which I had with me from Black Master. Oh, oh, I forget the name of the I'm sure you remember the title of the book, okay? Uh, okay, so I, I'm out there on the limb because I'm, I'm saying... 
It's bad for the country. Uh, I, I'm saying political action that attempts as its objective to get black people paid money is a bad way to try to do politics for the country. I don't understand why you can't agree with that. Or at least tell me why you disagree with it. Because I want to focus on trying to build inclusive coalitions of people. That's where my work is. My, I'm, not, I'm not Jeremiah. Okay, I'm not Nehemiah. Okay, I'm not Isaiah. Okay, I'm not one of the Old Testament prophets. My job is not to get up there, okay, at the podium and, and, and denounce, you know, everybody who is an evildoer. My job is to try to build. I'm an Ezra, okay? Ezra is the guy who builds the community, builds the walls, gives recognition to people, tries to find talent, tries to find energy. Nehemiah takes the credit for all the work that Ezra does. Okay, fine. Go ahead, Nehemiah. You do that. Okay. But I, my job is building up that community, that institution, those relationships, trying to find leadership, trying to help, help people develop and grow. That's my work, okay? I can't be going around the country looking, okay? I can't be like God's the Satan, okay, going around the world looking for things to point out to him, okay? That's not my job. My job is to build. I respect that. Uh, thanks very much, Ernie. Um, I think it's a conversation. We can have another one at some point in the future, but... I would you know. enjoy it very much so, and, and and I would enjoy I enjoy the the incessant contestation, okay, which I think is healthy and necessary for a democratic culture to emerge, okay. Thank you, Glenn Larry signing off here. Ernesto Cortez, Southwest Industrial Areas Foundation, uh, community organizer in the tradition of Saul Alinsky. Uh, didn't Barack Obama get his start as a Saul Alinsky-inspired uh, uh, organizer? Well, ironically, he did go to our national training. And I had a 